Thank you that you are kind to us. Thank you that you are gracious to us. Thank you, Father, that it's not because of who we are, but it's because of who you are. Thank you that we can come to you not because we are perfect and wonderful, but because you became nothing. Lord, we could never reach you. We never can reach you unless you reach us. Thank you that you care enough about us to reach down to us and say, I am not only King, not only Lord, but also Rescuer, Helper, Saver. Thank you that you have saved us. And I pray that you would uh, let us know that you are walking with us each day, that we might stand each day and follow after you. Be the heartbeat of our lives, Father. Not just at Christmas, but every moment of every day. May we realize how much we need you and live out of the knowledge of that and out of the knowledge of what you have done, coming as one of us, dying for us and being raised to life again for us. Amen. Now, some of you might perhaps have read today's reading. Could you please turn to uh, the book of 2 Zechariah, chapter 4. <laughs> There's no 2 Zechariah, exactly. Would you instead turn to Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. As I say, some of you are going, I've read this just maybe once in my life before. Let's see what it says again. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men came from eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, the prof uh, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in, Judea, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star had first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. And after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them not to return to Herod. And after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to kill, or he's going to search for the child to kill him. 
And that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the prophet had spoken through the what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. And Herod, well, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Uh, Just for those of you uh, that hadn't clicked like me, Rachel is not just some woman in Bethlehem or in Ramah. Rachel is the the mother of some of the patriarchs. She she stands for the mother of Israel. Um, I don't know if this is in the sermon, so I'll tell you now as well. Ramah is also the point where the exile... Uh, where they left for exile to Babylon. And so there they are crying because the people of Israel are being removed, are being destroyed, basically. This fulfilled what Jeremiah had written about this weeping and mourning. And when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Now, can I just have a show of hands? Who has heard this sermon, or not this sermon, who's heard this, this passage before? Who's heard it more than five times? Who's heard it more than 20 times? Who's, who's heard it every Christmas their whole life? Hands up? Okay, um, John, you'll do the first part of the talk. Reg, you'll do the <laughs> It does seem reasonable, doesn't it? Because we've heard it all before. We've heard it so many times before. What is it all about? Can we know what it's all about? Or have we already plumbed the depths? Is there nothing more for us to know? We're told here in chapter... 2 verse 1. I think there might be something more, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell. Tell me at the end if there is. About that time, we're told, Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod, and about that time, some wise men from the east came and visited. Now, when is about that time? It's, it's very sort of loose fitting. Now, we know that at about that time is roughly around the time when Jesus was born. It could be up to two years later. Because that's the amount of, well, that's the age of the boys that Herod ends up killing uh, based on when the star arrives. Now, you read some people that go, that's ridiculous. Uh, Herod probably was such a horrible man that that the, the wise men said, well, the star came up two months ago. And so Herod said, well, two months, make it two years. Who knows? It could have been a week. It could have been, it certainly wasn't that night. It could have been up to two years later. All we know, they're they're no longer in a stable. Jesus isn't in a manger. They're in a house. They've set up house. They're living there in Bethlehem. This is at least eight days afterwards. We know that because Jesus has already gone to Bethlehem. Uh, Jesus has already been named. All of this has happened. 
before they flee to Egypt. Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus has gone to Bethlehem. Uh, Mary and Joseph would have gone and offered the sacrifices that were required as part of having a child. The wise men, the magi, uh, do we have any wise men in the church? We have a wise man. No, no, I mean a wise man from the Christmas carol. We do. Les. There's Les at the back there. Les, where do you come from? Yeah. You come from here. You were born in, in Australia? Northern. Northern. Northern is east. Wise men, they, they came from Babylon or Persia or Arabia, kind of like Iraq, Iran kind of place. Uh, Babylon. They were, Magi gives it away, they were like magicians, astrologers, interpreters of signs and dreams and strange events. And and like astronomers, those are the scientists, they studied the stars, but, but they were astrologers also because they used the stars and all their calculations and maths to predict events on earth or to describe events on earth. Many in those uh, in that age, many in that era and that area thought that the universe was totally interconnected, that um, important events in the heavens were mirrored in important events on earth, and important events on earth were mirrored in important events in heaven. In heaven, I mean the skies. For example, 44 BC, uh, my mate and yours, Julius Caesar, died. Uh, and they did all sorts of celebrations, and part of the celebrations they had a big game. It's kind of like, you know, sports stuff. 44 BC, probably about July, they're having these games, and all of a sudden this bright star appears in the sky. And people go, wow, there goes old Julius. He's one of the gods. In fact, if you look at the coins minted by his adoptive son and heir, Augustus, whom we have met several times already, um, on the one side is a picture of Augustus's face, and on the other side is a picture of a bright star. Because this is, this is, you know, Julius Caesar has gone back to be the god that he has now become. The wise men had seen the star as it rose. And they knew that it didn't mean that someone had died, but that somebody very, very important, had come to life. How did they know that the king of the Jews was born? Some people say, oh, they they read Balaam's prophecy about a star will rise out out of Judah. I don't know if they did. I don't know how they figured out that the star meant that a king was born. Let me just be extra crystal plain here. This was not wise men who loved God and trusted God. These are pagan astrologers. These are the kind of people who would invite you around to hold a seance today or to play a Ouija boards with you or to, you know, read the cards, read your palm, but look at the stars and go, wow, tomorrow you are going to do this. This is the sort of people that we're talking about. How did they know? Even if they had read Numbers, somehow in a far-off distant land where there were maybe some Jews... How did they know that this particular star meant that the king had come? And what was the star? Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it a planetary alignment? I don't know. 
It seems both natural and supernatural. It moves in a way that doesn't seem to be completely natural. Matthew doesn't seem to care. He doesn't go into details about the star. He just, he just wants us to know that these wise men who were worshippers of the heavens, in effect, that was their God. That was how they understood life. That was how they calmed their fears. They came to worship Jesus because of a star. It's been said that God helps those who help themselves. It's not completely untrue, but but actually if, if we want to seek God, He seeks us first. If we want to find God, it's because He wants us to find Him. If, if we're seeking, it's because He's wooing. If we love Him, it's because He loves us. God invites us to come to him, and and there is only one way to come to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And these wise men, following their pagan ideas, head towards Jesus. God used, in effect, an idol to draw people to Jesus. And that's not right, is it? That's not how things are supposed to work. But it's interesting, because some of you might be looking at me going, so Nick, are you saying that all roads lead to God in the end? Well, no. But God can use anything as a pointer to himself. But do you know what I find really interesting about the story that I hadn't really noticed until this year? Uh, The wise men are led by the star this long distance, And right at the end, when they're like 10 or 15 kilometers away from Bethlehem, it stops. The star does not lead them straight to the house where Jesus was. The star does not lead them straight to the house where Jesus was. Instead, they arrive in Jerusalem, just comparatively next door, and they say, Where is the king? This is the capital. This is the place where the palaces are. Where is the king? Why did God not just keep sending the star ahead of them? I mean, when they leave Jerusalem, that's exactly what he does. They see the star, they're like, wow, this is fantastic. And the star leads them, and this is where the star seems to behave in a supernatural way. It just leads them and stops over the house where Jesus was. Why does God have the interruption? If he's got the star, why not just skip Jerusalem, you know, go on the bypass road and get straight to to Bethlehem? Because, I, I, I wonder if it's because ultimately what leads them to Jesus is not just their idol, not just their pagan ideas, not just the star. Even though the star is from God, they didn't realize that probably. What leads them to God, to Jesus, is God. And they need to know that. What they needed was more than guidance from a star. They needed direct guidance from God. Via his prophets. Via the chief priests and teachers of the law who, who should have been on the, on the ball waiting for the Messiah to come. 
And ironically, they get God's guidance and knowledge that God is leading them via the one who is hell-bent on destroying all challenges, King Herod. Herod knew enough to know when the wise men came and said, where is the one born king, that this would be the Messiah. Those he called in to search the scriptures were very quick to tell him that that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But neither of those two groups cared. Herod or the teachers cared for Jesus. I mean, Herod was in many ways a fantastic administrator. He did some incredible things. When there was famine, he fed people. When he, he gave them jobs, building an incredible temple, building all sorts of things. He, he was a master statesman. He brought a, 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 a degree of peace to the area. But he was also, as we've seen, uh, I think a man who lusted for power and prestige. This is the man who even ordered that when he died, the leading men of Jericho should be killed as well, so that at his funeral, people would be sad. Jericho. Jericho. Fortunately, people didn't kill the people. They were just probably glad that he was dead. And they thought, well, we're not going to kill all of our friends so that we can feel sad for you. But that's the sort of man he was. Herod... Herod was afraid. He was afraid of anyone who might threaten his power. He knew the word of God, he was told the word of God, and he decided he had to put a stop to any such plans of any such God. Herod uh, claimed to be a Jew. He was half uh, Edomian. They had been forced to convert to Judaism, but, but his... Allegiance to God, it went skin deep. He worshipped God, but you know, if you had to worship Caesar or any of the other Roman gods, you know, know, political expediency. He knew what the prophets had said, but nobody, not even God, dared challenge Herod. See, Herod knew where Jesus would be. But God doesn't care about how much we know. Um, I don't know about you, but for someone who, who quite enjoys knowing a lot of stuff, that's a bit of a shock. God's not impressed. What God rewards is not knowledge in our heads, but hunger in our hearts. Herod was not hungry for Christ. If anything, he thought Jesus, the Messiah, would it would destroy his position and prestige. The Magi, on the other hand, they were hungry for God, even though they didn't really know God. They were eager to worship the newborn king. Worship might just mean uh, praise and celebrate, but it seems that they were worshipping more than just a king. They were worshipping God. Herod and the scholars in Judah and Jerusalem, 
They had God's self-revelatory word and they didn't care. The Magi had a star, they had their pagan ideas and practices and they had a hunger and when they heard God's word and they went, they were overjoyed. Because they looked and said, wow, what God said is actually matching up with what we're seeing. Facts and promises are aligning. They head off to Bethlehem and the star which now reappears. Now that they have the knowledge that it's not just some thing in the sky, it's actually God who is guiding them. God who says, go to Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem and as they are going to Bethlehem, the star appears and guides them and and shows them the house where Jesus is. They know that these events are not just fated, but directed by God. And we don't know how long they stayed there. We know, verse 12, that they gave their gifts, that they worshipped. They probably had a little bit of a, a, a nap, a relax, and um, possibly that they were warned in a dream, like Joseph was warned in a dream, and they head off again. The gifts they gave were appropriate gifts to give to any king, uh, gifts to give to, to any of the pagan gods even. They, did they think that they were just giving gifts to a king when they set out? Do you know the amazing thing is Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt even if they had money to rent a house at this stage. This would finance their escape. Herod's sitting there in Jerusalem with the illusion of control and power. He is a view of self-absorption and lust for power and control gone mad. And he is like so many of us today who know all about Jesus but are threatened by him. And it seems like Herod in this story has all of the power. He rules. He commands. He directs. He kills. But Herod's power, although real, is actually much of an illusion. And I love the way God seems to play with him like a cat playing with a rat. Almost teasing him. God uses Herod to share his word to the Magi. To direct them to the king. God forces an own goal. Herod thinks he's being so smart. God's just sitting at the sidelines going, Oh man, you just just don't get it, do you? Herod's oblivious to God. It seems to me that that Herod doesn't even see God as a player in all of this. He thinks the wise men have outwitted him, that the wise men have made a fool of him, but actually, the wise men were not that wise. They hadn't clicked. If they hadn't had a dream, they would have gone, oh, before we go, let's go back to Herod. No, God comes to them, whether they dream or not, I don't know, comes to them and says, guys, get going now. That guy's, no, he's going to kill. The wise men weren't that wise. It's God that has outwitted and outfoxed and mocked Herod. And Herod still has power though, and he tries to cling on to it as tightly as he can. He's like a, like a petulant child. I don't know if anyone else has seen the new Star Wars movie yet. Um, 
Well, I won't spoil it for you because I know you're all going to be watching. Uh, but in there, this, this incredible, powerful soldier slashes. When he gets angry, he just goes, ah! with his sword and destroys things. That, that's the kind of thing that Herod is. He's just, he's like a two-year-old having a, a hissing fit. He's quite content to kill all the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. And you know what? We all go, oh, Bethlehem's a small place. It's only 20 kids. It is only 20 kids. I mean, 20 kids that should never have been killed. But in the, the grand scheme of all the horrible things that Herod did, it's one of the least horrible things. Jeremiah 31, we have that quotation about Rachel weeping as these children die. One of the least horrible things that he did, but, but such a horrible thing to do. That quotation is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. If you read the rest of Jeremiah 31, you'll, you'll see that it's about, goes on to promise an end to the exile. The context is they're in Ramah being sent away and it's like Israel is crying at the destruction of her children. Rachel is crying. She stands for the people of Israel. But Jeremiah 31 goes on to say there will be an end to the exile. There will be a new covenant. And with the birth of Jesus, the exile is coming to an end because the son of David, the promised king who would rescue his people, has come, come to bring them back to God through himself. And the weeping in Bethlehem that night as Herod threw his hissing fit, well, that was, that was the culmination of the weeping of Israel. This is the end of that era, the last of the weeping symbolically, in anticipation of the one who had come to make it possible to wipe away every tear, to remove every fear, to remove every tyrant. Matthew starts his gospel pretty much here in chapter 2 with the Magi coming to worship Jesus. These are pagan Gentiles, not the people of God. And the very next people in the Gospel of Matthew who call Jesus the King of the Jews is Pilate's soldiers and Pilate. Putting a sign above his head saying, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. At his birth, when they came asking for the king of the Jews, the bright star lit the way. At the cross, where they announced him as king of the Jews, an unearthly darkness covered the land. And there was a realization and there was one little voice saying softly. And you read this in chapter 27, verse 54. He really, he really was the Son of God. He really was the Son of God. And then he came back to life again and appeared to 
so many people who have testified to it to us today. But it's interesting that, that those who, who recognize Jesus as the King are not His own people. In fact, John begins his gospel saying he came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. Just because Jesus is king of the Jews doesn't mean he is only their king. The Messiah was always foretold and promised by God to bring justice and peace to the world. In fact, Jesus resurrected from the dead. His last words, as we've said several times this Christmas, were go out and tell the world and make disciples and and teach them to obey me and follow me. Trust me. From the start, the Magi show us that in Jesus, the barriers that we have set up to come to God have been broken down. All are welcome to come to Jesus. All are welcome to come to Jesus. Who is God come to us? God had a plan. And Herod, as powerful as he was, could do nothing more than move God's plan on it. There's a great story in the Old Testament, Balaam. He ended up cursing Israel, but there was this one time where, where he was paid to go and curse Israel, and he stands there, he goes, I don't know how you get ready to curse someone. He goes, stands over, looking over there and goes, The Lord bless you! And the king cursed him and says, Balaam, mate, I'm paying you to curse them. What's wrong? He goes, well, God. And the king says, right, well, let's go to this mountain over here. The Lord bless you! I think two or three times this happens. He can't not bless when God has said bless. This is the same thing that's happening here. Herod's going, I'm going to stomp this out. I'm going to destroy this before it starts. And he doesn't even realize, but in the very act of going boom, boom, he does what God intends. And he sends the Magi who equip Jesus to go and escape from Herod. Own goal! Oh, wait, no. I'm trying to do a Vuvuzela kind of thing. I can't do it. Imagine it and then frown. The teachers of the law knew all about God. And it's, it's possible to know your Bible and to ignore the key. It's possible to be like Herod and insist that we can be the king of our own life. Even as Jesus comes claiming to be the true king. And the question I think we are always left with when we come to Jesus is, will we, like Herod, think that we can ultimately fend off God's rightful claim to be the king? Not just out there, but the king of my life. I'll give you a clue. You can try, but you will fail. And in your opposition to God, God will actually just be fulfilling His own plan. And He will work good out of even our evil. Let's finish on a positive though. A positive question. Has God been wooing? Like those magi. Has He left any evidence calling us to seek Him? There's plenty of signposts. 
Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Come on, Bible. Romans chapter 1 says this. Verse 20. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky, and through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, and so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Most of us, unlike the Magi, are oblivious to the fact that there is a God. We, we reject it. We misread the signs. Perhaps we see it and we go to the wrong place. So we go to Jerusalem and go, well, where is He? He must be here. The good news is that God puts signposts to Himself up. But God doesn't just put up a signpost. God speaks. God calls. In the past, says Hebrews, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets and visions. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by the Son. These wise men heard from the prophets to go to the Son. Will we listen? Peter writes to the church and says, you guys, pay careful attention to the prophets until the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen for the wooing voice of God. Because if you are seeking God, He will be found. Because he's the one who's saying, I'm over here. And he doesn't leave cryptic clues. Well, he does. But those cryptic clues are meant to point us to Jesus. You know what Jesus did as he... Sorry, this is off topic here a little bit. But what Jesus did as he taught, he spoke in parables. Cryptic clues for the crowds. But his disciples would go to him and go, Jesus, explain it. And Jesus said, yeah, sure. And they said, why do you speak in parables? He said, so that people, they might hear and not, and not understand and see and not, and not see. But you come to me and I'll, I'll, I will show you. you. See, this is the thing. Don't just look at the clue and then misinterpret it and go, I don't know. Look at the clue and when you find that it points to Jesus, go to God and say, God, point me to yourself. Show us where Jesus is. Lead us to the Father, Jesus. When we put our trust in Him, He is our King and He defines us. And nothing can overcome His plan. Not Herod, not Debbie. And then you're a better person than a lot of us. Not Joy. Sorry, Brett, you're not going to overcome it. I'm not going to overcome it. None of us can overcome God's plan. And nothing we do can overcome God's plan. Not sin can overcome God's plan. Not life or death can overcome God's plan. Nothing can change the fact that He is King and that what He wills will come to pass. Will we bow before Him or say, I don't believe you can be God, I'd do a much better job. Well, try it.
And you'll see what happens to you is what happens to Herod. A little byline at the end of the story. Oh, when Herod had died. Any failure to live the perfect life must be met with punishment. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather Jesus did that than me. See, that's God's plan. To lead us to himself. To the one who can rescue and save and restore. You know, there's that old saying, wise men seek him still. Rubbish. A wise and gracious God seeks us still. Will we ignore the sign? Even if you've been a Christian for 47 years, run to Jesus.